Um, I, I thought after, um, like the minute I ended yesterday, I thought, oh golly, sometimes I, I might, and this is where you guys are totally free to stop me at. <laughs> I love my introductions, and I like, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm getting there. Um, um, sometimes um, I, I just, I guess I assume sometimes too much, maybe you guys know more than I think, or you don't. I don't know. So um, when I was talking about the kingdom a little bit, the future fulfillment aspect of it, um, I know it wasn't until I was about your guys' age, which is a wide range, but like, you know, in my 20, the young 20s, um, that I finally understood the whole concept of what even, where does the kingdom even fall into God's plan, the future literal kingdom. So I thought I'd just um, clarify that real quick this morning with the screen that disappeared up there. <laughs> I think the screen just blinked out. <laughs> That's it. That's the future. Okay. Um, so, this was designed to be a printout, but I'm just using what I got. Um, off the screen on your left is where church history begins. Um, and then that arrow that you find going straight up, that's where the rapture starts. And according to us dispensationalists we talked about yesterday, we will be raptured before the Great Tribulation, which is a seven-year period of God's judgment coming upon the earth. And more technically, as some of you might care, that Great Tribulation point broke down into sections. The Great Tribulation is actually the last half of those seven years. But anyways, so there's all that um, chaos that's going to come, the Antichrist is going to lead, and Israel will have 144,000 witnesses sent out and sealed and surviving through that time. And um, then Jesus is going to return, and that's where you see the kingdom. It's called the millennial reign. A thousand years, Revelation 20 refers it to. That's where the kingdom comes that we're talking about. Now, um, I know your guys' church in John Knapp and um, pretty much every other Calvary chapel says that the church will be in heaven during that great tribulation, and we will return with Christ to rule and reign with him. Um, Others would say, the post-tribulational rapture view, that we go through the great tribulation, and we await for his return to come. So, oh, look at that. Finally. Well, I'm done now, thanks. (laughs) Well, there's... I'll cut off too is the new Jerusalem so the thousand years happen literal earth this earth real Israel that the whole land that God wanted to give them um, so they'll actually literally have that whole thing fulfilled where Jesus is on David's throne right there and then the resurrection of all those that die and stuff and the unjust they're all judged and then we enter into the new heaven and the new earth so that whole concept uh, was totally foreign to me until I got out of high school so there you have it um any questions before we move on? That makes sense? Do we have scriptural references for uh, raptures and church age and things like that? Oh, boy. We have a lot of references for that. Uh, another class? Another yeah, this is, we're not, this is okay. not an eschatological class. And I just okay. figured it's a good time to let you guys know about it. Okay. Um, yeah, but we can, like, talk and stuff later about all that stuff. Um, oh, by the way, the first coming of Jesus, which was somewhere over here, you know, Christmas, <laughs> church age, then rapture. Um, so his first coming to his second coming right here, that is all called 
the last days. That's what we're in right now. And you'll see that pointed out in our passage this morning. Um, and the last days come to their consummation right here. And that's where we talk about the literal fulfillment of the kingdom. Right now, all the way over here, we're in the spiritual fulfillment where we're um, under his kingdom's rulership and it's invisibly shown through the church, but it's going to be physically present then. So, I think that's all I wanted to say about that. Ah, this whole page is called the Day of the Lord. So when you read the prophets, in that day, the Day of the Lord, referring to this map. So, alright, move on. Thanks, you can take that off if you want, if you need your computer. Um, alright, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you didn't leave us here in our strength to be your witnesses, and you didn't even leave us here with nothing else to do to become rich or whatever while waiting for you, but you gave us a, a mission, an important mission, and we're excited to be part of that, Father, and so we thank you for your Holy Spirit to empower us in that, and I pray for a constant filling amongst all of us, Father, to cough sin and the things that grieve your spirit and to let him have full control and outflowing, outpouring through our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so that's where we left off yesterday. Jesus telling the disciples he totally expected the kingdom to come right then because of the promise of the spirit. Remember, Old Testament said when the spirit comes, the kingdom comes. Well, Jesus was clarifying that's true, but there's a slight delay that you guys need to be aware of. The kingdom has come. We are the kingdom. But it's not a physical kingdom at the moment. Remember when um, Matthew 13, Jesus talked about the mystery of the kingdom in all of the parables? The mystery is that the kingdom has come into the world uh, prematurely from its physical fulfillment. All right, Everyone is expecting it to come, bam, there is the actual kingdom, there is Jesus on the throne. But the fact that it has come before that, in a spiritual sense being governed by the Holy Spirit and manifested through the Holy Spirit's works is a mystery because the Old Testament prophets didn't clarify that. So that's why Jesus said, this is the mystery of the kingdom, that the kingdom is here and now. Me, I'm bringing it. And it's going to later be physically fulfilled. So Jesus was telling them, so in the meantime, be my witnesses until that comes. That's where we left off. So, while the church is waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, they're in... 120 of them are worshiping and praying in anticipation for the Spirit to come. What would that have felt like? Think about that. You've been with Jesus. And He's talking about the coming of the Spirit. You've never been filled with the Spirit before. What, what's going to happen when he comes and bang? How is that going to feel? Are you nervous? Are you excited? Are you thinking, am I going to levitate? <laughs> How am I going to know what's going to happen? What, maybe they're thinking, what is this guy even talking about? I can't imagine that feeling because as Christians, we, we kind of just you get saved and the Holy Spirit comes and we didn't have that whole waiting Pentecostal moment. It was just... Just, he's there, and, and we, we learn to understand what happens to us after the fact, don't we? We get saved, but we don't necessarily understand, well, this is what I did, and this is how Jesus did it. Like, we learn that later through theology. 
that's what God did to save me. But they're just like waiting and like, what's going to happen? I couldn't imagine the anticipation, especially, um, think about the worship and the prayer that they have in this upper room. Think of how intense it would be. These are ten days they're waiting for. Was it a boring, long, drawn-out prayer session like ours often are? Or was this fervent? And were they just absolutely stoked about this prayer meeting? I would suggest the latter because they've seen things that we haven't seen. For example, let's look at what they've seen. Verse 9. This is the ascension of Jesus. Now, when he had spoken these things, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go up into heaven. So, remember, they've been eating together. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom and the coming of the Spirit. And they've watched him eat food. This resurrected Jesus isn't a spirit. He isn't some ghostly figure. He's an actual body that came back to life. They, they watched him eat a bologna sandwich right in front of their eyes. And that same person, touchable, tangible, eating food person, suddenly just went up into heaven. And they're just staring. And the angels come and say, why are you staring? And I'm like, did you see that? That was a real person that just... Can you guys imagine if I just started floating up? And and Jess said, why are you guys staring? <laughs> it would be, you guys would be like, in probably the rest of the day, like, what did we just... Professor? I didn't know that meant God or something. So... What's the deal with this ascension? It, it's more than just Jesus proving he was God because that was proven through his resurrection. Um, this was a transitional event. Jesus had been ministering on earth physically and he would soon be operating from heaven by his Holy Spirit through the apostles. So it's a transition. His ministry is now going to change. We're going to become the agents taking on his hands, his feet, becoming his body. So we're, in a sense, replacing his ministry. We are the Jesus here on earth. So it's a transition from, it, it's him giving to us his ministry and we're to carry it on. Now, um, the basic meaning, this is from George Ladd, he says, the basic meaning of the ascension is to convince the disciples that the appearances of the resurrected Jesus, he had been appearing to them for 40 days, are now at an end. That's the basic meaning. You're not going to see me anymore. I'm going away. And now the Holy Spirit's going to minister to you. So don't expect to keep looking for these appearances. They're done. I'm going up, and you guys are going to carry it on through the Holy Spirit. So um, we often, sometimes I think, think that the ascension was Jesus' glorification. But the Acts seem to show that it was his resurrection when he was glorified at the right hand of God. The ascension was merely just saying, I'm no longer going to be with you. He was already glorified when he was resurrected. That was the most, uh, the most concrete evidence that he was the Son of God. Not the ascension, but the resurrection. So, um, it helps us to have a proper understanding of the resurrection to see this. 
Uh, again, I'm quoting George Ladd. He said, by the way, he's in your perspectives book, so you guys will get familiar with him, I'm sure, if, if Jesse had to read one of his chapters. Um, he says, The resurrection was not a return to an earthly existence. It was an eschatological event. Let me back up. When Jesus came back to life in the resurrection, it wasn't as if I die, and then um, Jesse, um, prophet you, comes over, like the prophet he is, and prays over me, and I come back to life. He resurrects me. And we're like, wow. <laughs> that would be resurrection, but that was not Jesus' resurrection. He didn't simply die, and then he came back to life. When he came back to life, it was in such a way that it was an eschatological event. It was something that's going to happen to all believers in the future. It was something different. He became a new form of life with a new body, a resurrected body that we will receive. So, backing up, that's what Lad's saying, is the resurrection was not a return to an earthly existence, not just that mere coming back to life. But it was an eschatological event, the first fruits of the eschatological resurrection. So as Jesus rose, we will rise. First fruits were the rest of the harvest. The resurrection of Jesus was the emergence of eternal life in the midst of mortality. And that's what I thought was cool. When Jesus resurrected, there was eternal life living right amongst the disciples. He was eternal life right in the midst of mortal, fatal, dying beings. And that's what we're all partaking in someday. So that resurrection was his glorification. The ascension is just, bye, I'm not going to see you guys any longer. So, now this cloud. Luke's not trying to say that Jesus just went up and the cloud swarmed him, heaven's just right there. Uh, the cloud's probably referring to that physical glory and presence of Jesus, of God, that we see in Exodus, um, chapter 40, when the cloud fills the tabernacle on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9 when, again, uh, Peter was saying, this is great that we're here and then the cloud comes and they're terrified and God speaks from the cloud and says, this is my son. And so God was right there in the presence. So Jesus is going up and it seems as if the divine glory, the divine presence swallows him up. So they know without a doubt he's with the Father. As Peter will tell us later, he's at the right hand of God. Now, go to, if you will, um, go to 2 Kings chapter 9. I think that this is an Old Testament foreshadow of what we see in the Ascension. And it illuminates to me some light on the purpose of the Ascension. Pardon me, 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 9. (coughs) So Elijah is the prophet Elisha is his successor. Elijah is about to be taken up into heaven, ascended if you will. Uh, Elisha is right there, like the disciples, about to witness this. So 2 Kings 2.9 And so it was when they, Elijah Elisha, crossed over the river that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elisha, the successor, said, Please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So Elijah said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened. 
As they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, just as Jesus went up in the midst of the disciples. And verse 12, Elisha, like the disciples, saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And so he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces, a sign of grief. And he also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him. So he took up the mantle. Now, I think you guys see the parallel a little bit, right? That there's Elijah like Jesus taken up into heaven. Elisha like the disciples look and say, Oh dear, you're leaving. Give us your spirit. As Jesus said, I'm going to give you, your, give you my spirit. And so the church receives the spirit when Jesus goes up. Now what I like is that when Elijah went up, his mantle fell down, and when Elisha took it upon him, he was empowered to be like Elijah, and he used that mantle to cover the Jordan River and was able to walk upon dry ground. And I love the picture that it was the clothing of Elijah that um, proved Elisha had the power of his spirit. Because in Luke 24, verse 49 before leaving the disciples, right before Jesus ascends, remember the ascension in Luke as well, um, he tells them that you will be clothed with the power of the Spirit. The New King James says endowed, but other trans- some translations say clothed, and that, that totally fits the picture. So I thought that was really cool. Here Luke is possibly drawing upon imagery from the Old Testament and showing that the disciples are the successors of Jesus, just as Elisha was the successor of Elijah. And Jesse, what verse did you mention yesterday about Jesus saying we'll do greater works? John 14, no. 14, 17? No, that's the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesse mentioned that in a smaller group yesterday, that Jesus said we'll do greater works than himself. And, um, Elisha had the double portion then over Elijah, and Elisha ended up doing twice as many miracles as Elijah. So it's just a really cool connection there. So that's the ascension. Jesus concluded, or the angels concluded by saying, he's going to return just as he saw him go. How did he go? Into the clouds. From Mount of Olives is where they are, up to the clouds. He's going to return from, with the clouds, to the Mount of Olives. And you get that from Daniel 7:13, Revelation 1, 7. And Luke 21, verse 27. Okay, I thought you were going to say something. So now we get to verse 15. And this is an odd, bizarre section. So while they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether 120 of them, and he said, Men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in his ministry. Now, you might remember Judas, one of the twelve, but he defected, betrayed Jesus, and he went and hung himself. Now, Luke says that he died by his entrails gushing out, possibly, as Matthew said, he hung himself, maybe the rope snapped and he gushed out his bowels. Really, it's not a, um, a lot of people try to say it's a contradiction, it's really not even a big point of contradiction at all. And Peter continues to say in verse 20, 
I have an idea, and I'm going to prove it from the Psalms. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it. That's Psalm 69.25. And then he quotes Psalm 109, verse 8. Let another take his office. Alright, Peter, what do you mean by using these verses? He says, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, just a few verses ago, one of us must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So, he's saying we need to replace Judas. We need to get another apostle. Why? Why did Peter see it necessary that Judas would be replaced? I propose two reasons. The first is to maintain the number 12. Because Jesus in Luke 22 verse 30 told the disciples, Look, you will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 apostles judging the 12 tribes in my kingdom. Now we have 11, Peter says. We need a 12. So let's elect someone. Um, I think that Luke here is trying to show, it's one of his ways of trying to show, that Christianity is the true Israel. It's the perfection of Judaism. Because um, the, the um, 12 apostles are being mirrored with the 12 tribes. So... The apostles, the church, the tribe of Israel. This is the true Israel, the church. I think that's what Luke's trying to show, the perfected form of Judaism. Uh, the second reason Peter's proposing is we need a twelfth apostle to fulfill prophecy. The two psalms he read. Um, golly, you would read these in the psalms and think nothing about Judas. <laughs> what in the world is Peter thinking? Um, perhaps he has a motive and then he's thinking... Well, David seems to, now in light of the fact, this seems to maybe perhaps been referring to Judas or to some similar situation. So I'm using past written poetic poetry, redundancy, um, from David to prove my point. What happened in those Psalms? In Psalm 69 and 109, the psalmist, a righteous person, is being severely afflicted by his enemies. And he's talking in the psalm, it's what we call precatory psalms, where they're like bringing down curses upon the heads of their enemies. He says, let my enemies dwelling be desolate. Let them be gone. Let them be never heard of again. And then in Psalm 109, another part, the psalmist is saying, and let another take his office. Just replace him. I don't want to see my enemies anymore. Think what Peter's saying. is that if the righteous psalmist has the right to say such things to his enemies, how much more should the apostles be able to say that about Judas, who betrayed not just a righteous psalmist, but the Messiah himself? So if the psalmist could speak in such a way, then the apostles definitely should be able to speak in such a way, because it's a far greater crime against the Messiah. So Peter's saying, look, David spoke that way, we're speaking that way, and so we need someone to replace Judas to get our number 12. So, was Matthias the right choice? This is what happens. So they proposed to, in verse 23, Joseph and Matthias. And they prayed, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which of these two you've chosen. So they cast lots 
the lot falls upon Matthias. Basically, they flip a coin. They roll a dice. And Matthias is chosen. And it says there in verse 26, at the end, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, was Matthias supposed to be the twelfth apostle? Some say no. Some say yes. Why would some say Matthias wasn't? Well, look at the situation. Um, you've got Jesus telling them to sit tight, don't do anything till the Holy Spirit comes. Here they are, doing church business. <laughs> um, they, to decide which one, they cast lots. Just random casting of the die? Is that really how we're going to conduct business? Um, and also, um, perhaps, those that say Matthias wasn't supposed to be the twelfth say, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was God's chosen twelfth apostle. Because when you go to Acts chapter 9, verse 15, God there says, Go, for Paul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name for Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. He is my chosen vessel. So, some would say, they made a mistake, they acted rashly, Matthias is not an apostle, Paul is supposed to be the twelfth. By the way, Matthias is never mentioned again in the book of Acts. But the other side, Matthias was the right choice. And it's not a big deal, but I take the side that he was the right choice. For the reason of Lot were the normal custom of Jews to determine God's will. Prior to the Holy Spirit, that's all they knew. Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast and the Lord makes the decision through it. So they're operating in their mind the way that they're supposed to operate. Uh, secondly, to say that Matthias was never mentioned again is completely ignoring the fact that many of the apostles are never mentioned in the book of Acts. So that's no evidence whatsoever. Luke simply just didn't want to follow some of the apostles' route. He was following certain ones to show salvation history. And um, also... Um, that, I guess, was all my proof. <laughs> oh, that was it. Uh, the last verse, Luke himself says that um, Matthias was numbered with the eleven. Luke affirms he's one of the twelve. And Luke's a friend of Paul. He traveled with him. If Luke really felt Paul was the twelfth apostle, would he not have written right here, just a little claimer for Paul, and by the way, Paul's really the twelfth guy. He would have totally supported his bud, but he doesn't. So I think it's pretty clear that Matthias is the twelfth. So, um, now we get to chapter 2. This is it. The baptism of the Spirit floods upon them. And what is happening here? Let's read the first four verses. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, there were, uh, they were all with one accord in one place. So they're still worshiping and praying on the day of Pentecost. And suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, note that, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So Luke tells us it's on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50, because it was a feast that happened 50 days after Passover. There were three major feasts in the Jewish religion. 
in which they had to go physically to Jerusalem to celebrate, make pilgrimage, all of Israel, to Jerusalem on three days of the year. The first is uh, Passover. The second, which is about our March-April, the second is 50 days later, Pentecost. And then you have the whole summertime break, and about October would come the Feast of Tabernacles, and they would all live in tents around the city to remember their wilderness journey. Those are the three feasts everyone come there for. Now typically, because Pentecost was only 50 days after Passover, people who came for Passover would just stay until Pentecost. And so you've got, at this time, Jerusalem is up in its population. Um, numbers, if, I, I don't know how accurate these numbers are, but um, one author says possibly up to 200,000 people in Jerusalem, extra people, I guess, in Jerusalem at this time. And they're all flooding right now on the day of Pentecost into the temple to do their sacrifices and to offer what they did on Pentecost, which was a day to give your first fruits of your harvest, cut off the first best part, you give it to God and say, Thank you. Thank you for providing for us this harvest. It was the whole point of the feast. It was to say, thank you, God. You provided for us. And we want to give it back to you in hopes that you're going to do this for us next year. In some ways, kind of like a Thanksgiving. But later, tradition started to form. And along with that, Pentecost became a double-meaning feast. Not just to thank God for what he'd given them through the harvest, but they began to celebrate it as um, an anniversary of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. When Israel left Egypt, the Exodus, that was Passover. That's when Passover first started. And the tradition would say that 50 days later, they made it to Mount Sinai, and there on Mount Sinai, God through Moses gave the law to his people. So, it's very possible that it was already at this point of time that they were celebrating Pentecost as the anniversary of the giving of the law. Now, with that said, there are some parallels between Pentecost, this Pentecost, and the giving of the law on Sinai. In Deuteronomy 4.12, Moses is giving one of four sermons to the people right before they enter the promised land. And he's reminiscing, he's remembering the giving of the law on Sinai. And he tells them, The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of fire, and you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. You didn't see this physical shape of God. There's just fire, and from the fire you heard words coming to you. You only heard a voice. And so at Sinai, that's how God manifests himself, through fire and through voice. Now you come to Pentecost, and what do we see in this passage right here in the first four verses of chapter 2? Over the heads of the apostles are, what? Little tongues of fire. And coming out of their mouth was voices. Now, the voices become significant when you consider Jewish tradition at this time. Um, one Jewish tradition, this was actually stated later than Luke, but it could have been reflecting tradition at the moment. He said that the law was initially given in the 70 languages of the known nations of that time. On Mount Sinai, a Jewish scholar wrote 
a tradition that said God spoke in 70 languages. Now, is that true or not? It doesn't really matter because Luke is possibly drawing from tradition to paint exactly how he sees it, what happened at Pentecost. But even more convincing is the tradition that Philo, a Jewish commentator, wrote before Luke even penned Acts. He wrote this about the giving of the law. From the midst of the fire that streamed from heaven, there sounded forth to the hearer's utter amazement a voice. For the flame became the articulate speech in the language familiar with the audience. Now that's just some Jewish commentator writing that about the giving of the law. Luke, very well read and educated, no doubt knows this tradition. And here he writes Pentecost and he says, as we get to verse 5, the disciples start speaking in tongues. And the people in the courtyard, all over from Jerusalem and the world, coming to celebrate the feast, different languages and nations represented, hear the apostles speaking the things of God in their own language. And Philo wrote that about the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. That's cool. But here God is just, he's, he's, here's Sinai and now here's Pentecost. They're similar, but there's one difference. They're similar, but the giving of the Spirit is better than the giving of the law, Luke seems to be saying. That's why he's paralleling. That was the law, that was great, but the giving of the Spirit supersedes the giving of the law. That's why he's paralleling it. You'll see why at the end of this chapter. In fact, no, nah, hold off. So, there they are, verse 9. Um, these are the people that the different nations represented that hear the apostles speaking. There's Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabs. <laughs> we hear them speaking in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. Do you see what Luke's showing? The gospel here is to go out to the ends of the world. It's starting now. All the nations just surrounding the whole Mesopotamia area. They're all here at Jerusalem. They're all mentioned and they're all hearing the wonderful works of God. And when they leave after the Feast of Pentecost, they're taking it. And the, the apostles will go as well. So, at this point, um, I want to point out that Luke, in verse 1, uses a peculiar phrase. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, literally reads, in fulfillment of the day of Pentecost. That's a peculiar phrase. So, in fulfillment of the day of Pentecost, bam, the Holy Spirit comes. Pentecost, they, the people gave God their first fruits. But Luke's saying, this Pentecost fulfilled the whole purpose of Pentecost. Not man giving to God their first fruits, but God giving to man his first fruits. Huh? What first fruits? The first fruit of the Holy Spirit. It was Paul who said in Romans 8, verse 23, that the first fruits of the Spirit, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, and we're eagerly awaiting the adoption, the redemption of our body. In Ephesians 1.14, Paul there says, 
that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. In other words, the Holy Spirit is given to us to guarantee that we will ultimately reach the end, the destination for God of all people and salvation for eternity. We will be resurrected to have immortal bodies and live with Christ forever. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you have guarantee of that. In fact, the word guarantee there in Ephesians 1.14 also means down payment or deposit. Why do you put down a deposit on a guitar you want? You're telling the seller, I promise to give you the rest later. This is what I have. This is what I'm giving you now. The Holy Spirit is God saying, here, eternity is yours. I'm giving you a little taste and the rest is going to come because I've given you my down payment. And so, he's given us the first fruits, the first payment. The whole harvest is yet to come. And so Pentecost fulfills Luke says, just so peculiar, he says, on the fulfillment of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, the first fruit, was given to us. Now, I told you to mark the word wind, because wind plays a significant role in the Bible in dealing with new creations. Um, you probably know this, it should be noted, that in the Hebrew and in the Greek, Wind and spirit are the same word. They're used interchangeably. Whenever God wanted to do a new work, begin a new creation, His wind or His spirit is present. And you guys will be very familiar with some of these. Think about Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And the spirit or the wind of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then in verse 3, the creation begins. So what do you have in Genesis? You have these primordial, chaotic waters. How they got there is a matter of debate, as you, I'm sure you guys have heard. <laughs> did God put it there, or did something happen, like Satan fell and it became that way? Whatever, it doesn't matter. The fact is that there is this chaotic form in the world. And it's when the Holy Spirit, God's wind, comes and moves across that chaos that creation begins. A new work is done. Now, go to Genesis 8 verse 1. And there, Noah's floating on the ark. In the ark. And the waters, again, here we go, chaotic waters covering the entire globe. And how did the waters start to recede? Genesis 8 1. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind, his spirit, to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. And Noah gets off the ark and he's on the new earth. It's, it's sort of a picture of the, the new earth that we'll experience one day that was on the screen. Um, it's a new world, just Noah, going to repopulate. And the Holy Spirit again there creating the new creation. Then, in Exodus 14, Israel is not quite yet a nation. They're a people group, but they don't have a land, they don't have a government, they're not a nation. God delivers them out of Egypt. They come to the Red Sea. Egypt's following them, so in a sense they're still not free. Egypt's following them. And what does God do as they're at the Red Sea? In verse 21 of Exodus 14, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night 
and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. So then Israel went through, waters closed on the Egyptians, their new creation, a new nation, they're free. Just like when we come to Christ and we come new creations, Egypt's behind us, the world's not touching us, at least unless we go to it. <laughs> and we're free, we're going on to our new promises in Christ and there it is again, the wind bringing a new creation. And of course, that brings us here to Acts 2 verse 2. And a new creation, a new work is about to begin. So what comes? The Holy Spirit in the form of wind shakes the whole place. And of course, that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 17 of chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 2 5, 17, that we are in Christ a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things are becoming new. So, here's the new work of God. All new works start with the Holy Spirit. It's what we need. We don't need to just say, New Year's resolution. I'm going to stop cussing. Good luck. But the Holy Spirit can bring that new work. I'm going to stop cussing. Holy Spirit comes and changes my speech. Oh, that's a cheesy illustration, I guess, but what happens when you... All right. Now we get to Peter's sermon in verse 14. <coughs> now the question might be asked, if Luke wasn't there, how do we know he recorded what Peter said? How did he get this message? Well, it's not a far-fetched to say Luke talked to Peter or other apostles or other eyewitnesses that were there. And do you remember in our introduction we clarified that Luke is a historical document a written for history through the Greek style of doing history? And the Greek style of history, when they included speeches, there are four characteristics to the speeches that they include in their writings. And we must assume that Luke is sticking to the normal literary trends of the day. So that as the other Greek writers use speeches, Luke is doing the same thing. So here are those four characteristics. Number one, when Greek writers used speech, they were rarely fabricated. Almost never, in other words, made up. They were pulling upon a real speech. Um, there are like instances where Josephus, one historian, but he was not a Greek historian, he was a Jewish historian, um, he would make up speeches just to prove a point or to shape history. But Greek uh, historians, they drew upon actual events. And second, the speeches required eyewitness sources. So not just, oh yeah, I heard my grandpa was at the speech and he said this about it. They went to people that actually heard it and asked them, got the information. Number three, the speeches usually summarized the main points and were rarely verbatim. So what we read of Peter's sermon here, it's not verbatim. Luke is summarizing from the eyewitness accounts what basically he said. So if you will, it's kind of an outline of Peter's sermon. And then fourth, the speeches were typically recorded in the author's own words. He wasn't trying to actually replicate the exact phrases that Peter said or whatever. Luke took it and made it his own. I mean, he wasn't even there. It's fair. He would write more clearly if he wrote in his own words. So that's how we should look at Peter's sermon. Now, how is it structured? I like this. Ben Witherington um, comments on this sermon, and he says that Peter is representing his message 
as an investigation to a crime. He's talking to the Jews that crucified Jesus. And he is investigating a crime. Check this out. In verse 13, right before the sermon, others mock, seeing the, the speaking in tongues, they mock and say, these people are filled with new wine. They're drunk. So there's an accusation against Peter. And he stands up, and he's doing his investigation to crime, first by defending himself. We're not drunk. And then by going on the offensive, the attack, and saying, you guys are murderers. <laughs> Great sermon to preach. That's how he does it. And so he boldly speaks to the Jews that you are the ones that killed the Messiah that you were supposed to come uh, and follow and exalt. That you killed him. And he's trying to convince them, cut them to the heart. As we'll see, he successfully does. So, that is the basic structure there. I see, well, let's, let's go through it. So here's his defense. Peter stands up with the eleven. Golly, can you imagine? All of them in the temple area. There's 200,000 people milling about. And, um, <laughs> little insecure moment there. <laughs> 200,000 people milling about. And they're all doing their sacrifices and offering things to God. And Peter stands up. This is a fisherman. No education. He's a country bumpkin. He, you know, he, he's a fisherman because he failed his rabbinical classes. You, you would follow on with rabbis and study under them if you're smart and were able to memorize everything and interpret the law perfectly and stuff. Peter obviously failed at that. He's a, he's a fisherman. And so here comes this country bumpkin with no education. He stands up. The religious leaders' offices are just over there by the temple and lots of educated PhD people and then all these other Jews. And he stands up and has the audacity to say, we're not drunk. Let me tell you what's happening. And this is bold speaking. So he says, we're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. in the morning. But, verse 16, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor and smoke. Uh, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that, though, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's his defense. We're not drunk. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. I love the connection though because Paul, Ephesians 5.18 says, Be not drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. They see these people filled with the Spirit and they think they're drunk with wine. Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with spirit. There's a connection between drunkenness and the spirit. Now, when you're drunk, you act a certain way. You're influenced. It's almost like this not you person. Something, something else is coming out of you. Not how you normally act. They see the apostles and they say, this isn't how they normally act. There's something influencing them. There's something different about them. And Peter says, Holy Spirit. Now, we're coming up to the end of class, so I want to point out one thing before we break uh, 
and we'll pick up the rest of his sermon tomorrow. Peter says, um, right there in verse 17, quoting Joel, um, it shall come to pass in the last days that God will pour out his spirit. This is it, people. We're in the last days. The Holy Spirit is here. And of course, I, I recalling to your memory that the Old Testament scripture said, when the Holy Spirit comes, the end days are here. And so Peter explains, this is it. The Messiah has come. That, that's the marking point of the last days, when the Messiah comes. We're in that messianic age. If you remember, Peter's trying to prove that they killed the Messiah. Jesus was him. The last days are here, and we have the Holy Spirit to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, and you killed him. It's already happened. And of course, you'll get more aggressive as we see the rest tomorrow. But, um, the age of fulfillment has come. The day of consummation stands yet in the future. That's George Ladd. He talks about, again, that whole, the kingdom's here invisibly. It will come physically later. And it's God's design that the church, through the Holy Spirit, manifests it. So, um, if you, I quoted Ladd a couple times this morning, George Eldon Ladd. Um, he's, he's probably the best explainer at the whole element of the now and not yet aspects of the kingdom. Um, he writes a chapter of it in your perspectives book, cha- uh, page 83, George Eldon Ladd. Um, he, that might be fun to read if you guys just like a little bit of a fog. I don't want to spend all of Acts explaining that, so of course i got to pick this up in the future days to come. So, um... That's that. The, the last days are here. Guys, that's what we live in. The last days. The Holy Spirit's here. And we simply wait the day of the Lord when He shows up. So, that is where we will leave off. And we'll pick up the rest tomorrow. So, Lord, thank You for Your Holy Spirit to guide us. And um, may we be so influenced and affected by Your Spirit that others would say, there's, there's something influencing him, something different. God, that's what we want to be. We want to be different. We want to be uh, changers, game changers, society changers, as if we're intoxicating people with your gospel. So use us as your witnesses, we pray. Amen.